From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, what does it mean to be a politically committed writer? Adam Schatz will talk about that and about his new book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination. But first, has Planned Parenthood gotten too cautious and too corporate? AL Press will report in a minute. Planned Parenthood is known to all as the organization that provides abortion services and defends abortion rights. But is Planned Parenthood too cautious and too corporate? Are they forcing independent clinics to take the biggest risks? AL Press reported on that for The New Yorker. He's also written for The Atlantic and The New York Times op-ed page. He's a Puffin Foundation writing fellow at the Type Media Center and author of the unforgettable book, Dirty Work. We talked about it here. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. AL Press, welcome back. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be here. When the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade, a lot of our friends immediately sent a check to Planned Parenthood. People sent checks even though it's an immensely wealthy organization. Planned Parenthood and its affiliates have more than $2 billion. It's also a big organization. In addition to National Planned Parenthood, there are 49 affiliates like Planned Parenthood Los Angeles, Planned Parenthood of Greater New York, which raise their own money from 18 million donors and run 600 healthcare centers with 2 million patients annually. And the affiliates have broad discretion to set their own policies. The official Planned Parenthood motto is care no matter what, but it turns out some of the affiliates are less willing to provide abortion services than others. And in many places, independent abortion clinics do a lot of the work and face a lot of the threats from violent anti-abortion activists. For example, the Blue Mountain Clinic in Missoula, Montana. Tell us about them, starting with the Montana Supreme Court and what it says about abortion rights in that state. Montana is this fascinating state because it is one of the states that could well have had a trigger law go into effect banning all abortion services because the Republican Party now has a supermajority um, in the Montana legislature. The Montana governor is very anti-choice, very anti-abortion, as is the attorney general. But the Montana Supreme Court has recognized in a previous ruling that Montanans have uh, a right to privacy that includes decisions over bodily integrity, and that that covers the decision of whether or not to terminate pregnancy. So it has this protected status. And that's really important because it is surrounded by states where abortion right after the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade last June, where immediate bans went into effect. And so right away, a major question arose about whether Montana and its clinics um, and its abortion providers would welcome patients from other states uh, seeking abortion care. And it turned out that this flared into something of a controversy because the independent clinics in Montana, in particular, the one you named, Blue Mountain Clinic, but there's another one um, run by a woman named Helen Weems. The two independent clinics said, yes, 
we should provide abortion care uh, to patients coming from other states. And Planned Parenthood initially balked, um, and we learned this through an email that leaked uh, onto Twitter. Um, a reporter um, had uh, gotten hold of this leaked email, and it sort of went viral. By the way, you will not find it today. It's been expunged. But basically, whereby Planned Parenthood circulated an internal memo saying, we're not going to provide abortion care to out-of-state patients because of the legal risks and although that decision was reversed uh, about a month or so later, it raises the question of who is it that takes the biggest risks uh, when it comes to uh, extending care for women in, in this new era? And let's note that abortion rights is an issue you've been thinking about and writing about for a long time. I'm the son of an abortion provider. I've written a book uh, called Absolute Convictions about the murder of a physician who performed abortions in Buffalo, New York. His name was Barnett Slepian, and he was murdered in his home in 1998. And one of the things I want listeners to know right off the bat is that I am well aware that anyone who provides abortion care in this country, that any physician who is in any way associated with abortion um, takes a risk, takes, takes a physical risk, takes the risk of being stigmatized, of being sent nasty notes, death threats, uh, you name it, many things that my own father has faced during his uh, time as a physician. And so I don't want to minimize that at all, but I think it's important that we dig into and get into who is taking the biggest risks when it comes to this care and who has the least resources and the most. So Planned Parenthood of Montana reversed their original decision and agreed that they would provide abortion care for out-of-state patients, but there's a big qualification to the decision they made. That's right. And the um, director of the Blue Mountain Clinic that you mentioned, Nicole Smith, she referred to this as a partial reversal because um, there, there is the question of folks coming from out of state um, into Montana for medical abortions. And will they be mailed pills? Suppose they live uh, somewhere near the borders and they can get to a FedEx or they can get to a motel or some address pretty close to them. They can drive there. Are you willing to send them the medication to have a, med a med medical abortion? And Nicole Smith of the Blue Mountain Clinic and the other independent clinics in Montana said, yes, we are willing to do that because we want to make it as easy as possible for these, uh, this cohort of patients to access care. Planned Parenthood is still saying that, that those patients from out of state actually have to come to one of its facilities in person. So they have um, you know, offices in Billings and Helena and Missoula and, and uh, one other place, but that can be a long trek. And furthermore, if you have to take the medication there, it is protecting the provider from the risk that that patient will go back to a state where abortion is now illegal, and perhaps if a complication arises or if anything should happen, the, the provider can at least assure, be assured, well, they took the medication, the abortion took place in Montana, where it is still protected under the law. 
And Nicole Smith of Blue Mountain and, and the other independent clinic there, Helen Weems as well, are saying, you know what? We are going to leave that decision to the patient. Yes, it's theoretically possible that a patient could come, get the medication, go back to their state, have a complication, or even take the medication in their state. And that could expose us to some risk. But in this day and age, as, as Nicole Smith put it, I thought this was, was a really powerful point, that risk is either going to fall on patients or some of it will be assumed by the providers. And in her view, the providers have to step forward and say, we're going to assume it. This is worth it to us because it is such a crisis. So in Montana, the independent clinics will mail mifepristone, the abortion drug, to any address inside the state of Montana, even if it's just one mile over the Wyoming line. What's the Planned Parenthood policy? Planned Parenthood policy is that that patient, if they are out of state, has to come to Planned Parenthood's facility, the brick and mortar facility, make that trip, travel that distance. And again, this is, it may sound minor, but that can be a major uh, trip. I, I actually interview uh, a woman who, who came to uh, Montana, uh, traveled five hours by car to get to Missoula. You know, suppose they can't do that. Suppose they don't have a day to do that. And then there's the story you tell of Planned Parenthood South Texas. Of course, Texas is the state that has been ground zero for the abortion rights battle, going back to SB8, the law that banned abortion after six weeks of pregnancy, and offered that $10,000 bounty to any private citizen who successfully sued someone involved in such a procedure. That seemed unconstitutional because at the time it passed, Roe v. Wade was still federal law. I thought Planned Parenthood South Texas would have continued to perform abortions and promise to provide legal defense for anybody prosecuted under SB 8. But what did Planned Parenthood of South Texas do? Planned Parenthood of South Texas actually stopped doing any abortion care after SB 8 became law. And that really raised eyebrows among advocates and actually among some of the physicians uh, that I that I interviewed when I did this story in Texas, because as you just said, at the time, Roe was still the law and it, the SB8 bill was seen as an effort to intimidate, to intimidate providers, to basically say, if you dare provide this abortion care, we will go after you with these you know, bounty rewards that, that vigilantes, in a sense, that private citizens can bring, even though they're not parties to these um, to, to what is happening. Um, and there were doctors in Texas who said, you know, to hell with this. I have an obligation to provide this constitutional right to my patients. One particular uh, physician, Dr. Alan Braid, actually wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in which he said, I am going to continue to do this care. And he told me he had peers who were willing to take the same step, and yet Planned Parenthood of South Texas was taking the most risk-averse stance, which is not just let's comply with the law, but let's not do any abortion care because it could get us into legal trouble. And it sort of highlights what, what is a theme of my story and a question it raises, which is, you know, is a big, sprawling organization like that ill-equipped to take the kinds of risk, to, to be the risk taker, to be on the front lines, pushing for this, uh, pushing for bolder action that essentially says, well, yeah, 
Roe was reversed, but this is a fundamental right, and we will do everything we can to extend and to provide it. You quote in The New Yorker one reproductive rights scholar who told you that Planned Parenthood has, quote, turned over this movement to a whole new group of lawyers, not the constitutional lawyers, but the risk managers. And that has left it to the independent uh, clinics to do the work and take the risks. Another example, Casper, Wyoming, where you visited Julie Burkhart, the founder of an abortion care nonprofit named Wellspring Health Access. That's my favorite part of your New Yorker reporting. Tell us about Julie Burkhardt and Casper. Julie Burkhardt is a really remarkable figure. Um, and John, as you know, I've written a book about moral courage. And um, boy, she's a, she's a poster child for moral courage. Uh, Julie Burkhardt um, actually worked in, uh, in Wichita, Kansas, um, at an abortion clinic where George Tiller, Dr. George Tiller worked, and he was murdered in the foyer of his church. And that took away the only, the only clinic serving not only Wichita, but, but really a very vast area surrounding it, a large rural area. And who stepped in to say, let's reopen this clinic, let's do this. It wasn't Planned Parenthood, which actually had a facility in Wichita. It was Julie Burkhart, and it took her a couple of years. She faced death threats. She was even advised by advocates uh, of abortion rights. You know, this will only bring more violence to the community. She opened the clinic. In the beginning, nobody came. Soon, hundreds and then thousands of of women and and patients were being served. She then did the same thing in Oklahoma City, Uh, again, a place where no one was, even though there was a Planned Parenthood there. And now she has opened a clinic in Casper, Wyoming. It's really a remarkable step because Wyoming has actually gone forward and said, we're going to ban all abortion. Who challenged them in court? Julie Burkhart, citing the state constitution saying, you know, you've got a right to privacy provision and we think it, it, we will win and we will continue to provide, be able to provide care here. Her clinic just opened for service there. It's a very hostile, remote area, the kind of remote area one would think a well-funded organization like Planned Parenthood would kind of circle on the map and say, you know what, let's go here. And I learned from your piece in The New Yorker that Planned Parenthood's history of caution, let's call it, about providing abortion services is not a factor of the post-Roe era. It has a long history. They have for decades emphasized that only 3% of their work was doing abortions, that they are a comprehensive women's health organization, not just an abortion provider. And of course, that's true. But, but what? But they're also the brand of the movement. They're also, you know, as you said in your opening, the organization people write a check to the minute they hear uh, that uh, a repressive anti-choice or anti-abortion measure has been put in place. They don't think of the Wellspring Health Center because most people haven't heard of it or the Abortion Care Network, the association of, of independent clinics across the country and independent clinics, by the way, provide the majority of abortion care in the United States. They're less well-known, they have less resources generally, but they play this crucial, crucial role. And I should say, my piece is 100% supportive of the mission of Planned Parenthood. What it asks and questions and interrogates is, 
can they go further? Can they be bolder in fulfilling that mission? And as you just said, the language and the messaging of the organization has often suggested caution. And that has some providers feel and some advocates feel left the moral high ground to the anti-abortion movement. There's a second part of Planned Parenthood. In addition to the service provider, there's the political arm, Planned Parenthood Action Fund. And their motto is, we will never back down in the fight to protect abortion access. They push for pro-choice laws and policies in every election. They mobilize and educate voters. You report that last year, Planned Parenthood Action helped defeat anti-abortion ballot initiatives in many states, notably Kansas and Kentucky. And along with the ACLU, they filed lawsuits across the country challenging state restrictions. But Planned Parenthood Action Fund has also made some controversial decisions about which battles to fight and which to avoid. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Partly because of the work of Planned Parenthood Action, in 2020, Democrats in Minnesota won a trifecta, control of both branches of the state legislature and reelected the Democratic governor. This is a huge success for abortion rights, especially since the Dakotas and Iowa are anti-abortion states right now. But tell us about Unrestrict Minnesota and the organization Gender Justice. Yeah. So what happened, John, is there were a group of, I would call them reproductive justice organizations um, that see abortion really as part of a broader struggle for equality, not just a single kind of issue, not just choice, but real reproductive justice and equality, who said, you know what? This state, Minnesota, that we're living in has all kinds of restrictions, parental notification laws, 24-hour waiting periods, um, laws requiring physicians to read false information or misleading information to patients before providing abortion care. Let's get rid of all these laws. Let's push to get rid of them by filing a lawsuit. And let's launch a grassroots campaign that will you know, really rally popular support for abortion rights. And what I discovered in my report reporting is that, um, you know, this is this extraordinary coalition that comes together called Unrestrict. It is successful. And Planned Parenthood is, is curiously missing. If you go to the Unrestrict Minnesota webpage, you will see all kinds of organizations, LGBTQ organizations, church, uh, progressive uh, faith community groups, but you won't see Planned Parenthood there. And in fact, they not only didn't participate in the lawsuit, those who led and brought the lawsuit felt that they tried to scuttle the effort. And what was Planned Parenthood's reasoning? I think that they felt it would backfire, that this kind of aggressive lawsuit, keep in mind, this was 2018, 2019, when the conversations began, Donald Trump was president. There was broadly perceived uh, a sense of precariousness about Roe and also about him being reelected that, you know, my God, are we, is this a time to be aggressive? Let's just defend and, and, and try to get, as you said, the, the governor of the legislature on our side. Now, by the way, Gender uh, Justice, the organization that brought this lawsuit, also saw that Roe was hanging by a thread and they had a very different approach. They said, you know what? Let's mobilize. Let's organize locally 
and within this state to make it a beacon of access. And they decided to take the risk, a risk that Planned Parenthood did not want them to take. And what happened to the gender justice lawsuit that Planned Parenthood refused to join? That lawsuit, remarkably enough, win uh, really just after the Dodd decision. It was kind of buried in the news because it came so quickly after this rollback. But um, but they won. And um, and actually, I quote a ruling from the judge in the case. It's it's an extremely powerful statement. Judge Thomas Gilligan, a district court judge who declared when affirming their case and rolling back these restrictions, the right to choose to have an abortion would be meaningless without the right to access abortion care. And that is really the theme of my story and, and what I think we all have to keep an eye on as we move forward. Most of Planned Parenthood's contributions, it turns out, come from uh, the families of a few billionaires. Warren Buffett's Family Foundation has given hundreds of millions to Planned Parenthood. Uh, Mackenzie Scott last year gave Planned Parenthood $275 million, the largest single contribution in the organization's history. She's the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos. So it's hard to say that Planned Parenthood needs money. For people who want to give money to someplace other than Planned Parenthood, what are some good choices? There's a National Association of Abortion Funds. These are justice funds that, that basically their sole purpose is to help women of lesser means uh, and patients of lesser means uh, obtain access to abortion care. That's one possibility. The Abortion Care Network, which is an association of independent clinics, uh, is another. And then I would say, you know, individual outfits like Just the Pill, which is doing extraordinary, really cutting edge work to basically get abortion medication and pills to patients in very remote places where they wouldn't, they can't get to a brick and mortar facility. And of course, Julie Burkhart's Wellspring Health, which to me is again, a model of how this work can be done. That's the National Network of Abortion Funds, the Abortion Care Network, Just the Pill, and Wellspring Health Access. You can find each of them online. Is there anything else you'd like to say in closing? Well, I think I would just add one last thought, which is that this issue is so polarized and so violent that I think it has created kind of a code of silence, not just among advocates and providers, but I would also say among a lot of journalists and progressive news outlets that, you know, even if you sort of know there are issues with Planned Parenthood, it's not the right time to air this. Um, we are under assault. The, the right to abortion is under assault. It will not benefit the movement. But movements benefit by reflecting on what has gone wrong and what might go right and what might be changed. And I was so inspired by the voices in this story who came forward and said, knowing everything I just said, still wanted to go on the record and, and talk about these issues. And that, I think, tells you something about how important it is to them, and really should be to anyone who supports the cause of abortion rights, that we do actually have to talk about these things. And as reporters and news outlets, we do have to cover them, because otherwise nothing changes. AL Press, you can read his article, The Problem with Planned Parenthood, online at newyorker.com. AL, thanks for this report. And thanks for talking with us today. 
Thanks so much, John. Great to talk to you. What does it mean to be a politically committed writer? Adam Schatz has been thinking about that for a while now. He's the U.S. editor of the London Review of Books and former literary editor of The Nation. He's also written for the New York Times Magazine, the New York Review, and the New Yorker. And he's host of a wonderful podcast called Myself with Others. Now we have a book of his essays, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Always a pleasure. Well, today an author's identity is crucial. Women and people of color have authority to write about their experiences and ideas, as do LGBTQ writers. But there was a time when you were a student a while ago when the death of the author was the ruling idea in literary criticism. That was the title of an essay by Roland Barthes, who said, it is language which speaks, not the author. And Michel Foucault agreed, asking, quote, what difference does it make who is speaking? And then finally, Jacques Derrida, whose motto was, there's nothing outside the text. That was the world of literary theory when you arrived at college in 1990. What did you think about the idea that it is language that speaks, not the author? Well, I admit that at the time I, I, I bathed in, in this idea. It seemed the height of sophistication, totally counterintuitive, which was part of its attraction. And all the, the cool people were talking about it. So <laughs> what was not to like? Um, the idea behind it, of course, was that any kind of focus on a writer's life and experience, the writer's relationship to history, led you away from the play of language, from the words in the text, and in a sense, was a way of controlling, limiting interpretation. I mean, in effect, what Bart and Foucault were saying was that the, the very name of the author is a policing function. It limits what you can say about a text. And so it seemed very libertarian in a way. And for that reason, um, I found it appealing, but it also went against some of my other instincts. You quote a wonderful line from Jean-Paul Sartre's 1948 essay, What is Literature? What did he say about writers? Writers are alive before they're dead. His argument was that writers make choices. They take up moral and political positions in their prose. They're, you know, they are connected to institutions of, of power and, to, and they are writing for a public. And uh, Sartre was, was drawn to that field of activity in a way that I think, you know, Bart and Foucault really weren't. So for the generation of intellectuals writing after World War II, Sartre personified the engaged intellectual. This, of course, was the age of existentialism. But you write about Sartre, the man was more important than his ideas. Please explain. I think I say that the man was more important than his ideas in an essay about Sartre's impact on Arab writers um, and writers in the Middle East, where he had an enormous impact because of his bold anti-colonialism and his opposition to the war in Algeria and ultimately his support for the Algerian National Liberation Front. And I think that while Sartre's uh, existentialist projects certainly had some, some influence among Middle Eastern and Arab philosophers, 
his influence was much deeper as a public figure, as a, as a rep, as an, as a, um, an exemplar of what a universal intellectual uh, could be. And ultimately, that was also true of his impact in France. Uh, Sartre and existentialism is a finished project, but the idea of the universal intellectual still holds some appeal, even though there are very few practitioners today. There is an aura to Sartre, you know, which he never quite lost in spite of all the efforts of younger philosophers to slay the mighty father. Okay, the background and biography of writers shaped their work, but that's not the most important thing. Most important, you write, is how they choose to interpret their past, how they incorporate this understanding into the project. And you're talking here not just about political choices, but also about their aesthetic commitments. Yes, you know, my argument is not that, uh, that writing is regurgitated biography. It's not. I'm not saying that you can reduce a philosophical project like Derrida's deconstruction to the life that he led. Clearly you can't. But if you, if you read Derrida's work and some of his concerns against the backdrop of, of his life, particularly of his childhood, you begin to see that some of the ideas in deconstruction, for example, the critique of binary thinking, uh, are rooted in uh, this, the traumas that he suffered in Algeria um, in the 1940s when he was a school child uh, evicted uh, from his school when Algerian Jews were stripped of their citizenship. Now, Derrida was not an Andijan, he was not a native, he was not an Arab or Berber, but at the same time, he wasn't a French settler. He was from uh, a community of, of Algerian Jews who traced their origins to both Jewish Berbers and to uh, Spanish Jews who had fled the Inquisition. So these uh, Algerian Jews were a third party. They were not colonizer or colonized. You can see the relationship between that and Derrida's critique of binarism. So I'm not saying that's all deconstruction is, but I'm saying that our understanding of deconstruction as a humanistic project is deepened by engagement with the life. You've always been fascinated by ideological conversion, especially thinkers who move from left to right. You open your book with Fuad Ajami, the most politically influential Arab intellectual of his generation in the United States. He died in 2014, was a political scientist and a professor at Princeton, then Johns Hopkins, who started out as a critic of American power and a defender of Palestinian rights, and also a critic of the failings of Arab politicians and intellectuals. And he was a MacArthur genius, class of 1982. How did he end up? You know, it's, it's funny that you described Ajami as the most politically influential uh, Arab intellectual of his time. And I guess, you know, that's true. I mean, I was just thinking, was Edward Said as influential? Well, intellectually, but not politically. And it's because of where Ajami ended up. Ajami uh, eventually gravitated towards a kind of neoconservative establishment. And uh, in the days before the Iraq war, Dick Cheney was citing Ajami's authority that the Iraqis would greet the American soldiers invading with rice and flowers. Uh, so uh, no, uh, Ajami's uh, trajectory is a, is a very striking one. And I, I was fascinated by this story because you know he'd started out as um, a child of, uh, of, of Lebanese Shia parents in an area of Beirut called Arnoun and uh, 
was, you know, early on uh, enraptured by Gamal Abdel Nasser and, and Pan-Arabism, became a, a very thoughtful and judicious critic of American power in the West uh, when he arrived in the States, um, was very close to Said, and then traveled this road towards uh, the American empire, which, which, which uh, embraced him with alacrity. Um, he was often on tele, he was a, constantly on CBS, in fact. I write about him very critically, of course, but also with some admiration for the elegance of his prose and for the insights of his early work. And I think that this, there, there's something tragic about the story, too. Another theme of your book is Black American writers who went into exile in France. Today, when we look back on Black writing in America since World War II, James Baldwin is everything. But there was a time in the 40s when Richard Wright was not only America's most famous and commercially successful black writer, but also an international literary celebrity. Of course, in 1940, he had published the novel Native Son, the unforgettable story of Bigger Thomas, who kills two women, one white and one black. And then in 1949, a young black writer named James Baldwin attacked that book. And you write, its author never really recovered. First of all, remind us about Richard Wright and Bigger Thomas. Why was Bigger so important? The critic Irving Howe said that Native Son changed the face of American literature, and I don't think it's an exaggeration. There had not been a novel that had depicted in such a blunt and brutal fashion the rage and fury of a poor black man from the American slums. Bigger Thomas was in that sense a, an utterly revolutionary invention. Wright had earlier published a collection of stories, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and when he found out that um, it had become so popular, he was determined to write a novel that would scandalize, infuriate, and terrify middle-class white readers. He, he certainly succeeded with Native Son. And what was James Baldwin's critique in 1949? Uh, Baldwin was a, was a huge admirer of Richard Wright's memoir, A Black Boy, which was published in 1945, and in fact said that he could never quite forgive Richard Wright for having written that memoir, because that's the book we all wanted to write. <laughs> um, but he, he was very troubled by Native Son, and he wrote about it in a kind of addendum to a piece about Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and his argument was that uh, in Richard Wright's novel, as in Uncle Tom's Cabin, the reality of the black character is essentially reducible to that person's categorization. Richard Wright had not written a character like Richard Wright. He'd <laughs> written a character who was a, a symbol of violence and monstrosity. Now, it's important to remember that when Baldwin read uh, Native Son, some very important passages had been expurgated because the book had been chosen by, by the Book of the Month Club. And as a condition of its inclusion, uh, Wright had to cut passages in which it's clear that the white woman he kills, Mary Dalton, uh, wants to have sex with him. In the, in the version of Native Son that was published at the time, he appears to be killing her without motive, except the fear that he would be caught in a bedroom with a white woman. In the novel, in the original novel, Mary Dalton, who's drunk, is turned on, and so is he. And it is, it is a consensual moment. And that, is, that moment was utterly scandalous from the point of view of the Book of the Month Club. And so 
the story lost a good deal of its erotic complexity. So, you know, it's important to remember that Baldwin was responding to that and not to Wright's original intentions. Nevertheless, what Baldwin, I think, felt was that Wright had written a kind of 30s-style social realist novel using a Black man as a symbol rather than exploring the complexities, especially the psychological complexities uh, of Black experience. I think another criticism that Baldwin had was that there is that you do not see a restorative, nurturing Black community in Native Son. In Native Son, the Black individuals are almost anomic. The family barely seems to count for anything. You know, in Baldwin, the Black family is everything. It's, it's where you go in hard times. Right depicts his characters as alienated, lonely individuals who are denied even the comforts of tribe. And uh, Baldwin, Baldwin objected to this. But this was certainly the way that Richard Wright understood his world. And who was James Baldwin when he went after Richard Wright in 1949? Well, you know, Baldwin was a, was a young writer. He was, um, he was barely 25 years old. He'd, he'd moved to Paris a year earlier. He published the piece in a, in a Paris-based magazine called Zero and then republished it in the Partisan Review. And not long after that, wrote a follow-up to the piece in which he attacked Richard Wright even more harshly, Many Thousands Gone. It's very important to recall that, that Richard Wright was uh, an idol for, for James Baldwin. James Baldwin had gone to Richard Wright's home just before Richard Wright and his, and his wife, Ellen, and their, their young daughter moved to Paris. And when he went to visit the Wright family in Brooklyn, Wright plied him with bourbon and took him on as a kind of protege and arranged for Baldwin to get uh, an important grant, the Eugene Saxton grant, which allowed Baldwin to continue writing his novel, his, his autobiographical novel, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. So Richard Wright was sitting in a, a cafe in Paris when Baldwin entered on the day of the publication of that 1949 piece, called Baldwin over to his table, said, said I want to have a, a word with you, young man, and accused Baldwin of trying to destroy him. And Baldwin writes in a in a retrospective essay that he wrote in 1961 after after Richard Wright's death that he it never occurred to him that he could destroy the <laughs> reputation of a man like Richard Wright. But in a sense, he did. I'm exaggerating, of course, but um, the but the the impact on on uh, on Wright's reputation was was lasting. Your essay on Richard Wright focuses on his days as an expat in in France, starting in 1946. Of course, this takes us back to existentialism. What did Jean Paul Sartre think about Richard Wright and Bigger Thomas? Sartre was a was a great admirer. Uh, of Richard Wright, as was Simone de Beauvoir. They they loved um, Native Son and Black Boy and published uh, translations of the work in the existential journal Les Temps Modernes, which is where uh, readers like Franz Fanon first discovered uh, Richard Wright's work. And it was felt, I think, that Wright was a kind of um, intuitive existentialist, that his exploration of Black life in America Yes, it was a kind of raw existentialism. And, and Wright uh, became very curious about existentialism when he got to Paris and uh, wrote a novel um, called The Outsider, which is stuffed with existential ideas for, for better or for worse. 
Although Wright, I think, also had a sense that perhaps the existentialists needed him more than uh, more than he needed them. He was standing in front of his library one day with uh, the Trinidadian uh, Marxist writer, uh, C.L.R. James. And he said to James, you see all those books, existentialists, Kierkegaard, Carl Jaspers, etc. I, I understood that before I even read them. <laughs> and that was another one of Baldwin's objections to write in his later essay, Alas, Poor Richard, the one that was published after his death in 61. And it was that uh, Wright had forged this relationship with existentialists who had no feeling for black life. And then there was one best-selling black American writer in the 60s who celebrated Native Son and Bigger Thomas, Eldridge Cleaver. What was his view? Well, Eldridge Cleaver regarded Bigger Thomas as a proto-revolutionary because he had carried out these extremely violent acts against white power, the, the daughter of a very wealthy white man who had employed him. And he found the language of, uh, of, of Native Son. He found the, the kind of carnal embrace of violence and the relationship between violence and uh, self-liberation to be enthralling. Remember that Bigger Thomas comes into an awareness of himself as an individual, of his freedom in killing. It's the first time he actually feels like a man. And, and for Eldridge Cleaver, who had spent all this time in prison and who you know, had been involved in various violent activities, he felt a great sense of identification uh, with Bigger Thomas. Now, oddly enough, one of Richard Wright's fiercest critics and uh, a man who had been his protege, his friend, Ralph Ellison, had once defended Native Son in almost exactly the same terms in correspondence with Richard Wright. The history around Native Son, its, its admirers and its critics, is, is truly fascinating. One other thing, Richard Wright had been a member of the American Communist Party. How did that work out? Well, you could argue that it worked out very badly, of course, because Richard Wright became very frustrated uh, by the party in World War II uh, when it put aside its very admirable anti-racist work to support the war effort. And Wright also opposed the entry into the war initially. And he became so frustrated with the party that he eventually left and he wrote a famous essay that appeared in The God That Failed. So from that point of view, one could argue that Richard Wright's story is the classic story of the left-wing intellectuals who joins the party and then leaves. However, there's also a strong argument that Richard Wright owed a great debt to the political party, even though he eventually outwore it. It was in the political party that he first found his voice as an intellectual, as a writer. It's where he realized that there was a space in American life where black and white people could actually interact on an equal plane, where black people could have leadership positions, where black people could be in a position of authority towards whites. And he wrote his earliest work, some of his best work, as a communist. Even Native Son is the work of a communist writer. So I think the Richard Wright's relationship to the Communist Party is a complex one. I, I, I don't think it's a matter of simply of someone who is stifled by a party and emancipates himself from it. That's a part of it, but the early part is also true. The title of your book is Writers and Missionaries, but the last essay is called Writers or missionaries. What's going on here? The change in the title reflects uh, 
an updating or a, in my thinking or, or an added nuance. When I, in 2014, I gave a lecture about my experience of reporting in the Middle East and it was titled Writers or Missionaries and it drew upon a conversation that I had with V.S. Naipaul, uh, the Nobel Prize winning Trinidadian Indian writer, just after um, 9-11. And V.S. Naipaul said, if you're writing on a subject as controversial and sensitive as political Islam, as Islam, you have to make a choice. Are you a writer or are you a missionary? Are you willing to discuss things that are taboo, that are troubling? Or is your main interest soft peddling these realities and presenting something in a noble light? Now, if anyone was a missionary on the question of Islam, it was V.S. Naipaul. I mean, Naipaul however brilliant a novelist he was, was also quite Islamophobic. I mean, toward the end of his life, I think he was very sympathetic to the, the Modi regime in India. And I'm not even talking about his, his views on, on Black Africans, which are just as troubling. However, the comment did stick with me. I, I do think that there, there are tensions between being a writer and being a missionary, between being a committed writer and being an analyst between being a critic and being an advocate. There are tensions. And the, the purpose of that talk was to underscore the tensions. But in the book, you know, my argument is that it's not a binary, it's not clear cut. As a writer, you're, you're both. And your relationship to these things shifts depending on context, depending on mood, depending on what, what you're responding to. And so that's why I decided that the title needed to be adjusted. And finally, we often praise people who speak truth to power, but you say, first of all, that's not so easy. And second of all, that's not your primary goal in your work. Please explain that. It's not that I think that speaking truth to power is unimportant. It's not that I think it shouldn't be done. I've certainly done a fair amount of it myself and will continue to do that. It's just that I think the most interesting, most lasting writing asks questions more than attempting to resolve them. And what's more, I've become much more interested in how a position is argued than in what its ultimate argument is. And so to me, the lasting interest of writing lies more in details and in nuance, in complexity of expression. And so I, I, I guess, you know, that sentence reflects the fact that I was getting a little bored with writing that is simply about exposing injustice. There is, of course, a place for that, particularly in muckraking reporting. But I think when we're reflecting on experiences and realities that are so multifaceted, that simply calling out abuses is not enough. And often it can be an excuse for failing to look within, for for performing kinds of self-reflection that are just as significant, just as important. Adam Schatz, his book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination, is out now. Adam, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. 
D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.